Hello and welcome to Hello Governor of the Podcast. As always, I am Abdullah, and my guest today is, introduce yourself, good sir. Alex Sahara. Whom you may know from a lot of roles on Stargate. I think you're probably one of the few people who've done more than one character on Star- Stargate, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, uh, actually, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I've done more characters on Stargate than any other actor. Which is amazing, honestly. <laughs> I think that's kind of a... An amazing accomplishment, but do you do you ever get like, do you ever get to to that point where you have to look up your own name on IMDb just to to remember all the characters you played on that show? Not quite, because I mean, I mean that's it's pretty memorable. Like you know, um, I had a good time. Occasionally, I'm like someone will mention a show, and I'll go, I did that. You know, I was in that. Oh yeah, that's right, I was in that. You know, like when you come in for just like a day on a movie or something like that, you're like, and if it was like twenty plus years ago, maybe I. I'm I'm getting a little older now, so it takes a uh, takes a while to access the memory, you know. Because <laughs> I I was impressed by it. I'm like, oh, he was on Stargate. Maybe he played like maybe one or two characters. No, it was it was probably like five or seven different characters. <laughs> yeah, I think um I think I think it was like up to eight or something like that. Because in one episode alone, like I played um in uh, uh in Beast of Burden, I played uh, my main guy was Shy One. And then I played like so. I played shy one. I played a, a an unas in uh, in the field working. I played an unas carrying water. I played an unas, uh, you know, in in the town uh, delivering goods or something. I played a slave unas. I played a female waitress unas. I played a, a bloodhound unas. So that's like seven right there in one episode alone. I mean, yes. I was it. Did I have one main character, one main speaking part character? Sure. But then they had us play all these other characters as well, right? But in that one episode alone, it was seven or eight different characters. That's that's pretty impressive, honestly. Like I don't I don't think I I've ever talked to anybody who who's like, Oh yeah, I played seven different characters in one episode. Well, what of it? Yeah. <laughs> I guess that I guess that, <laughs> that might be a bit of a record, I suppose, in some respects. Who knows? Yeah, Maybe. but in that one episode alone. I, oh yeah, we played and I played the the I said there was eight, I played the Unas in the slave market. And uh, they actually they they credited it as Keening Unas because one of our other Unas creatures gets like you know injured or or whatever, and me and another guy just go Ooh, like a Wookie almost. <laughs> and how long did it take you to memorize all the alien languages on that show? <clears throat> well, actually, that was fairly that was fairly simple. That one, um, uh, Peter Deluise, uh, who directed that episode, or no, not not he he had, he had, he directed um enemy mine but uh he had written um i've been part of writing the whole unas language and uh it was pretty simple pretty pretty it's pretty easy you know what i mean i have to say um uh it it came it came quickly because i don't know for me maybe maybe it's because my birthday is on halloween and i'm used to loving dress up and playing and all that and but uh no it came fairly i still remember one of the lines of dialogue is uh uman no keka unas unas kokeka uman Meaning, uh, and it means uh, the humans aren't going to kill the UNAS. The UNAS are going to kill the humans. So I still remember that after all these years. But uh, yeah, I know it, it, was, it came fairly, fairly easily. And does it feel weird looking back on that show? Well, just given the time, like weird, how do you mean? I mean, just like watching yourself play all these different characters and speaking alien languages after all these <laughs> years. <laughs> well, no, you know, looking back, it feels a little funny because um. uh I haven't really been on a show. Well, that's not true. Um, 
that show was a real family affair. You know what I mean? So the people, the producers, everybody, there it was just a real, you know, people were like, you know, just really good people. And well, the entire crew was so tight and it really was like a family. Um, so it's a hard thing to come by. Like, cause you know, after the first or second episode I did, I never auditioned again. Right. Um, uh, Michael Greenberg, John Lennock and um, others, the producers there, they just, um, you know, wrote episodes or planned episodes with myself and Dion Johnson or Johnson. Uh, in, excuse me. I got a bit of a cough today. <clears throat> he, they wrote episodes with us in mind. So that, um, you know, they would phone us up, you know, a few months ahead sometimes and say, hey, listen, we're planning on doing an episode, you know, a heavy prosthetic alien episode. Are you guys into that? And we're like, are you available? I'm like, yeah, sure. So they would plan it ahead of time. So it's rare to get a show that really, you know, uh, treats you so well. Uh, and, and that's another thing on set, the, the care that they gave us on set and, you know, the people you worked with were just amazing like the the cast the crew the phone crew the makeup people everybody was just incredible yeah it was a real treat and do you still keep in touch with anyone from that show oh we run into each other for sure and like my buddy dan Payne and i we still are we're in contact quite a bit um he played uh we didn't work together on the show per se but he was like myself and did a lot of um you know heavy prosthetic makeup uh gigs he played like the um like the super wraith and whatever on uh atlantis i believe it is um uh so yeah stargate atlantis and 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 then stargate itself but he and i will go to uh have gone to a lot of conventions for stargate in the past so <laughs> excuse me <clears throat> pardon me but yeah you know um you know I, on facebook and stuff we we talk and we chat and whatever um like dion johnston and i he's down in the states uh i've been working on a, a show called um gosh what's it called now uh oh oh um oh gosh i can't remember it'll come back to me but you know we we just message once in a while and stuff like that but you know it's you see the we used to see each other a lot more the local actors uh in and around uh town here when you go to auditions etc but now it's all you know auditions are pretty much self-taped so you don't we don't see each other as much as we did and that's uh that's a big regret of mine it was really fun seeing uh, the old gang when you go to like you know auditions right yeah, I mean that sense of community is not is no longer there because of you know COVID and what have you. Yeah, it's uh, it's been tough, like you know, because yeah, you don't, you know, you don't go, and then because of COVID too, you couldn't go out as much, et cetera. So you don't see you know your your compadres that you you know you know auditioned with, et cetera. And, but, but yeah, a few years, I guess when I go do, do different, you know, uh, or gruesome Stargate rather on you know various shows around, so we see our, see ourselves and you know, greet each other and uh, have some fond memories on set. So, yeah. And occasionally in an airport, I was in the airport and uh, one of the camera guys, Alex, uh, uh, he's Alex Martinez. Yeah. He's a camera guy. And he and I were, uh, you know, passing an airport a few times and uh, we, you know, greeted each other and we're like, you know, sharing memories of the show, et cetera. Et cetera. So, you know, cause I mean like, you know, overall, like I did like eight or eight or eight to 10 episodes and, you know, you get, but you get to know each other a lot when you're working like so many hours because we would go to work at like 3.30 in the morning to, to get into heavy prosthetic makeup, take three to four hours. And then it takes an hour or hour and a half to get out of it. So we'd be there well before the rest of the crew and leave after the rest of the crew had left, you know. So we were putting in like, you know, 18 hour days easily. You know, So you really get to know each other when you're working that that long and that closely together, right? I can imagine because you guys are would have probably been the first person, first people in and first people out on set, if I'm not mistaken. Is that well, correct? 
actors at least by in, in the actors we would be like the makeup people would be there before us or around the same time like the, the prosthetic makeup people to to do us up um and sure there'd be security and and some of the you know production assistants and stuff would be there the pas to you know open the open the facility up etc but yeah primarily it was it was it of the actors it'd be us like they're like at least three to four hours ahead of the rest of the gang so do you have any funny stories on doing your time yeah. on, on, on the show well, the one that really pops to mind, there's a couple, like <clears throat> the first episode I ever did, I played Zales in Spirits and I was this, you know, shape-shifting, you know, God that was, you know, able or not God, alien, but the um, Salish people, like I, I basically myself and my, my uh, mate, um, Takaya and others, we pretended to be the gods of the Salish people because they, the Salish people had been uprooted from earth by the uh, Gaul and whatever. And, um, Anyway, we we defeated the Gaul, got rid of them, and and uh, you know just tried to keep these these people's lives uh, you know normal. So we would be like, I pretended to be the Raven God, right? But um, it was so hot in the studio that summer. We'd had a bit of a heat wave, and it was like thirty eight Celsius, which probably isn't too hot for you, uh, for you live, but thirty eight Celsius, and it was just blazing. And you in this mylar, I was in this mylar robe or outfit and my gosh it was so hot and my character gets zat gunned at some point and um uh what happened oh yeah so i get zat gunned and I'm, I'm on the gurney supposed to be asleep or like you know unconscious well i really fell asleep uh, because it was so hot and during the take um uh during the take um amanda tapping leans down and shakes me awake on the shoulder and says alex you're snoring. So I was snoring. I was snoring and um, I was snoring and she, I, I hadn't known I'd fallen asleep. And so she wakes me up and I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And she goes, don't worry. We're all there, you know? And so that was like a real struggle to stay awake because, you know, it's my first episode. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like I fell asleep or whatever, but couldn't help it because I'm lying on a gurney supposed to be unconscious. And it was like so hot. I just passed right out, just slept. So that was a good one. And then, uh, when I went to say goodbye to Richard Dean Anderson in that episode, we we filmed half half the day or half the morning doing one episode, and then the second half of the morning or the day, the afternoon was they're starting a new episode. Well, they had never seen me outside of makeup. Well, Richard had never seen me outside of makeup. So after I got my makeup off, I went around to say goodbye to everybody, and I walked up to Richard and said, "Hey, Richard, see ya. You know, take care or whatever." And he looked at me like, "Who the heck are you?" And so I literally put one hand below my nose and one hand above my eyes and i said you know hey it's alex or whatever he goes oh alex hey because he'd only ever seen my eyes right so that was pretty funny but uh yeah there's a couple there and you know uh was it um i I fell asleep one time during beast of burden like you can't breathe through your nose right and that was the other thing i was snoring in that in that episode too on the on the gurney because you can't breathe through your nose because it's sealed in so i started like you know but I fell asleep one time uh, on a break in during Beast of Burden, and uh, I I closed my mouth in the sleep in my sleep, and I started dreaming that I couldn't breathe because I wasn't breathing. And all of a sudden, I just woke up and I opened my mouth and just shot up, <gasps> and I just said, "Okay, Alex, don't panic, just relax. It's all good." You know, I, luckily I was a I shouldn't say luckily, but I was alone. So nobody else saw me freaking out. And I was just like, oh, okay, I better just uh, not do that again. So yeah, like stuff like that happens. You look back in retrospect, it was pretty funny. 
<laughs> oh man, you could have died. <laughs> I could have died, you know, whatever. But I, I don't think I think that luckily the body is a good enough system that it won't let you kill yourself by not opening your mouth when you're, you know, asleep. So it woke me up. So that's good. And uh, how long does it usually take you to get into makeup? Well, it it varies based on what it is that you're doing. Um, like some stuff can be fairly quick, and by fairly quick, I mean like an hour to an hour and a half. Uh, it just depends. But the first time we did like the full on, um, you know, uh, Unas makeup, and that's a full body thing too. I had to, they flew me down to Santa Monica to get um, like a body cast done because the arms and the legs were, you know, they had to fit your body entirely, like perfectly, right? So um, I think the first time we got into makeup for it was like f four hours or four and a half hours. And that included like putting the body on and, and it ties into a body suit and whatever. And they, they, the arms and legs, they lace at the, at the, at like the, um, um, shoulder and at the, at the hip. Um, but they, some of the guys, like they're really fast. Like they some of the guys are, well, they're so pro, right. Um, um, like, uh, Todd Miller, um, um, you know, Mike Fields, Brad Proctor, uh, these guys, uh, they work with uh, Masters FX. Todd Masters is a good friend of mine. Uh, he, we've known each other for years, uh, but they get it down to like, you know, sometimes two and a half hours, you know, two, two and a half hours some, sometimes. So yeah, it just really depends on the character and, and the, the, the level uh, of makeup required. And is it hard, like walking around set in that stuff? Mm. Well, it's not too bad because um, like in there, like my eyes were, Except for one episode, um, was it, um, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, what was that episode? See, look at me. I'm like, you asked, can you remember? Do you have any problem remembering? No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I too sometimes, um, what's the name of that episode? Um, Foothold, in Foothold. So I was the alien leader in Foothold and a couple other characters as well in that episode. And um, yeah, so I played in, in two or three other characters in that episode. But um, basically, like if you put your your fingers over your eyes and just, do a, you know, separate them by a millimeter or two. That's all I could see out of. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. That's all I could see out of. So, and they had to put a little black veil inside to hide my eyes. So um, at one point, I just remember I had to run up the stairs in the control room, in the in the gate room. And um, I tripped, missed, whatever. And I, I knew there was a, like a, what's it called? Like a banister on the right, a railing. And I just shot my left arm out because I knew I was going to fall. So I shot my left arm out, managed to grab the banister and swung around. And uh, everybody just came running. Andy, Andy Mikita was directing that. And he was like, holy crap. And he just leapt out from behind the camera. And Alex, you okay? Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, I'm all right. I just couldn't see the floor or whatever. But um, I did a, I did this kid's show, um, these two movies. Dan Payne and I did these movies together. Um, uh, aliens Stole My Homework and Aliens Ate My Body. Or, you know, Aliens Ate My Homework and Aliens Stole My Body. And it, they're based on a kids uh, series of kids books by Bruce Covell, and uh, in the '90s they were written. Very progressive though, because I played Tar Gibbons, and he was an, uh, uh, a master of warrior science. And uh, uh, he, uh, he, I call him like a, he was a mix between Yoda and um, Mr. Miyagi. But uh, his body was like a, a, he had a snail body. He was basically based on a snail. So I had four legs, which snails don't have. But anyway, four legs. But I had a snail face and eyes. So I had no real eyes where my eyes should be. I just had these tiny little slits I could see through. And I had these um, animatronic snail eyes that came out of my forehead. 
and about a you know half a foot above my body and above my head. Well, literally, like if you close your fingers tight and put them against your eyes, that's all I could see. So I had to get led around set, or if I was doing moves on set, I had to have a complete pathway free because I also had two prosthetic legs on both on either side of my real legs, these fake legs that were joined together, and I had to walk around. And I was in the first movie we did, I was in six inch uh, high drag queen boots. So getting around set and walking around was always a challenge. Let me tell you that. Okay. Did you ever trip? Oh God. Yeah. You bet. Like a couple of, that's why I had people with me. So like, you know, you're walking over cables, et cetera. And like, literally I had no, I couldn't see down. Like I would literally have, I, I couldn't bend my neck because of this massive uh, costume I had on. I couldn't turn my head because the eyes were supposed to turn. Right. So the eyes were independent. So yeah, I had to have people with me all the time. And yeah, I tripped over lots of stuff, cables, uh, people's feet, uh, anything lying on the ground. I could never, I just couldn't see. So yeah, I had to be, everything had to be super clear. Oh man, that must've been a nightmare. I can't imagine like trying to walk around and be like, okay, I, I, I need to like not trip over anything important because it's a long day. We got to get this done. <coughs> and you know, I don't want yeah, to. Well, well, yeah, what I felt was a nightmare for me was, uh, but it was just exhausting, right? Because imagine going for 12 or 15 hours and not moving your head. Imagine how you would feel not turning your head, right? And I couldn't focus. I mean, I literally, it would be like I uh, my focus would be like an inch in front of my face and through these little slits. So it was very uncomfortable. The high heels were just brutal. I, I did the mistake during the lunch the first day. I took them off. And then when I put them, try to put them back on, I know what ladies feel like when they do high heels like that. Mm. Sweet Jesus. Like I, I was in so much pain in the, I was literally crying like inside my outfit because that's how much it hurt. Like my feet were hurting that bad. And uh, yeah, I never thought to like try them ahead of time and do whatever. It never cro crossed my mind, but oh boy. So this, for the second movie we did, I said, no more of these drag queen boots, no more. Uh, and I, I, I went out and, Honest to God, I found a, a pair of rubber boots that looked alien-like, uh, spaceman-like at Mark's Work Warehouse, and I bought four of them, two for my real feet and two for the fake feet, and <laughs> that's what I wore during that movie. I mean, it helps, I guess. <laughs> I mean, whatever whatever helps makes the oh, yeah. less painful, I guess. Well, yeah. I mean, and that's the whole thing. They want, they want it to look good. They want it to feel good and, and look alien form like you know uh, foreign technology or you know, alien technology but at the same time they're they're not going to put you in jeopardy ever i mean the stargate guys kept such good care of us and everybody else like, i mean we had assistants with us all the time oh here's a funny one i just remember this this nancy kwan i believe her name was uh young woman first day on set working she was a, a you know assistant uh costumes and her job was to assist us and you know you know stay with us if anything come up so she was with us all the time well the first time we did these big Unas characters, they weren't really thinking, I guess, or they forgot, geez, these guys kind of have to go to the bathroom during the day, don't they? Well, they forgot to put any for form of zipper in these costumes, like in the body of the costumes. So when we got there, we were like, uh, hey, um, there's a problem here. So they quickly just put these emer emergency zippers in the body of the costume so that we could at least pee during the day. We couldn't eat really solid food during the day we were only allowed to have like um uh what is it like what we make slurps not slurpees what am i saying smoothies. smoothies thank you we make smoothies um we could only eat smoothies and drink water etc because we couldn't 
go number two because if you had to go to the bathroom like it was you'd have to completely undress because you'd have to take your you know your whole bodysuit off everything so poor nancy her job the first day up was to take us to the bathroom and pull our pants down <laughs> and and then literally they had built this eventually they built this zipper with a giant like cir- circular piece of plastic like a ring and we'd ha- we'd have like our our little paws and claws and we'd have to go to the bathroom you know insert your thumb paw claw into the ring pull the zipper down and wiggle yourself out of your pants as best you could and then you know have a pee or whatever and stuff yourself back and then but nancy had to do your pants up for you you know it was just people the indignity behind the scenes it's incredible you know what i mean <laughs> like a little kid getting dressed for the first time <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah you know <laughs> seriously i swear it was her first day or first show and she just was like throwing the deep end with us because you know some of us have played the aliens before and but these were different ones and they did different costumes and they just it just totally slipped their minds to put a zipper in for us you know what i mean that must have been also exhausting, like just being told, hey, you can't eat anything. You just have to like just drink water and, and smoothies well, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't too bad. I mean, like what's what's brutal is when it's really hot and sweaty and you're like dying in, inside those suits. Like, I mean, I remember one, I did uh, King Midas for Once Upon a Time and I was in this massive ornate like, you know, gown robe thing and we were shooting out in in the forest where we did a lot of Stargate in GVR in the GVRD and Seymour demonstration for us. And I kid you not, like we drank bottles and bottles of water that all the guys that were playing my nights and myself, we never peed all day. We just sweat. That's how hot it was. I'm, I'm not, I'm not joking. Like I think the entire day I never went to the bathroom. I just, I sweat like four gallons. It was just ridiculous, you know, and you're walking around in blazing sunlight and oh, just, yeah. I love, I love the fact that like, you know, people say, you know, acting, you know, it's so it's so glamorous and this and that. I'm like, not when you have to wear the same outfit for an entire week and you know that you've got like, you know, you've just sweated like, no kidding, like three liters, five liters of water into your sweat, into your outfit, you know? Oh, man, I, I remember reading stories about uh, stuntmen who have to like take off the prosthetics and then just, just like sweat everywhere, just like a, oh, yeah. a bucket of sweat. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Like. I, I was just remembering, like, one, the one episode we did, um, uh, which one was it? Um, Space Race. And I, uh, <coughs> excuse me, I played Warwick. I played uh, my buddy Dion Johnson, couldn't do that episode. So they asked me, could I, you know, uh, imitate him? You know, and I, uh, so I looked at it and I, yeah, I could do that. So I did it and they said, okay, well, we'll, we'll do this episode. Anyway, they had made this outfit for me and they made it out of a neoprene suit and but it was like a seven mils thick. And I was like, oh my God. And one time during one of the takes, all I remember is people rushing up to me and doing things to me. And I didn't know what was going on. And they undid the suit and they packed me full of ice packs, et cetera. And all of a sudden I remember like, it was like um, something from the movie, seriously. And, and all of a sudden just like my eyes and ears and everything just it was like a freight train. just And I could suddenly hear and see everybody. And apparently I was speaking gobbledygook. I was just like, because I had overheated and didn't know it. And like, I didn't know I was overheating. It just happened. And uh, so they rushed in and, you know, cooled me down and told me I was starting to, you know, act like a weirdo or whatever. And I said, okay, well, let's, now we know that can happen. Let's just keep an eye on me and whatever. But that was the only time that it ever happened. Like I, I got completely overheated and didn't know I was getting hot. 
at the time. So that was a little weird, but it's difficult sometimes when they make these costumes and stuff because they make them out of the stuff and but there's no ventilation. I I I feel for I just saw a behind the scenes thing about Star Wars and them filming in like the desert in like you know uh, Tunisia. And I can't imagine Anthony Daniels in that C-3PO's outfit or anybody else in these massive outfits out in the middle of the Tunisian desert in like a hundred degree heat blazing sun. I mean, I had a bad enough time, like, you know, right on set, never mind in the blazing sun. My gosh. Oh man. Yeah. I remember watching a documentary on, on the, on the making of the first star Wars and like a lot of the stuff broke, like a lot of it, like just stopped working and, like there are entire days where they're just like sitting around in costumes, just waiting for, for the people to fix the the thing so they could like get get it over with. And Absolutely. I can't I cannot imagine dealing with that. Like because I like I, my my tolerance for crap is is really it's really um I, I can't tolerate that sort of stuff. Oh. <laughs> like I can't. Well, hey, aren't you guys like? Isn't the World Cup happening in your area like right away here? No, no. Um, that's that's another. <laughs> That's another country. <laughs> oh no, but I mean, in the, but I'm saying in the in the in the in that general area is yeah, what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like, and how hot is it there right now? Oh, God, I don't know. Like over over here, it's it's like only four uh, twenty four Celsius, but like it feels like feels much higher. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the whole thing. Like um, both my wife and I, we don't do well in heat, hey, honey. Nope. No. So like you know, just um. You know, when we get into like, we went to Hawaii or Mexico, and I think it was Mexico was really quite warm. But I said, so I just can't imagine being in like, you know, well, it's not true. I was I was in a heat wave in Europe one time, and it was like forty two or forty five degrees in Rome. It was just crazy hot. And uh, I met a couple of girls that had come from um, Madrid because they wanted to cool off because Madrid was like fifty one. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, anyway, I just yeah, I. I can't imagine working in those conditions like those guys, you know, like Anthony Daniels and, you know, um, uh, what's his name? He played R2-D2. Um, oh, gosh, it'll come back to me. But <coughs> still, just, you know, I, I blah, blah. that would be my my worst nightmare would be having to do a show like that for months in a desert. No way. I just, uh, <laughs> no, thanks. I'll pass. Especially the actors who play R2. That's like you're, you're basically just stuck in a trash can for them for like yeah. at least long think- I think that na- the actor's name was Kenny Baker. I think Kenny Baker was his name. Yeah, just nuts. And out of all the characters you played, which one would you say was the most challenging? Most challenging? Um, well, the most emotionally challenging was playing Mike uh, in Stargate, or you were talking any, Stargate, or any, any role, any role. Well, the Michael character in Stargate was was challenging because, like, uh, you know, they, they kept saying in the script, like, you know, I don't want to, I, I don't want to go to war, I don't want to go to war. And he didn't. He didn't want to go to war. But the biggest thing was he didn't want to kill anybody. And um, and, and I think most people would prefer not to kill another human being. Thank you very much. So it, it was challenging in the respect of like representing them, you know, all the all the young men that didn't want to kill anyone and left uh, the states, like the draft dodgers, as it were. Because you know, are they draft dodgers or are they you know conscientious objectors that just had, had enough? So dealing with that and representing them was important. And, um, and at the end, like, during the filming of the, of the episode that Charlie Carell was directing and great guys passed on now, but um, I said, Charlie, it's, it's, it, he keep, my character keeps saying this, but it's, it's more than that. It's like, I, he doesn't want to kill anybody. Like, I don't want to kill anyone. And he said, okay, well, we're going to put that in. So we went ahead and shot that and we shot it both ways. And 
you know, Michael Greenberg and others are, you know, they're smart and really good at what they do. And, and so they realized, yeah, we're getting to the heart of what this character is about. So they kept it in and uh, it's in, it's in the episode. So that was a challenge, like representing that, but, you know, um, emotionally, like one of the toughest, well, different things for different reasons. I played Sherlock Holmes in a, in a play called Baskerville, like a comedy drama Baskerville at um at the Arts Club Theater here, for the Arts Club Theater at the Stanley Theater, and then I toured for three months with it. And just the sheer amount of lines uh, playing Sherlock Holmes in this play, a live play, and I hadn't done a play in about 10 years. And, um, you know, playing this, a friend of mine who's directing said, hey, I want to see you come out and audition for this. And I thought, well, me, I'm blonde, I'm blue-eyed. You know, Sherlock is normally portrayed as dark-haired and very thin. And I'm I'm not thin, I'm not fat, but I'm not thin. I'm, you know, you know, medium sort of athletic build. And, and he said, no, I want to see you do it. So I auditioned, I got it, but just doing that, that role. And, and like, it was a crazy show because, you know, we had three, three actors playing 48 characters. And I, and when I was off stage, like I'd be helping people change. Like sometimes, you know, I'm the lead actor. Yeah. But I mean, it's a theater, it's a community. And we're like, you know, guys are coming off and I'm taking a hat from a guy passing him a handgun and, off this guy goes playing another character, right? Or, or the same character, but in a different day or whatever, right? So that's, a lot of roles have different challenges for different things. Um, emotionally, one of the hardest ones was I did, um, uh, I played the the real life commandant of Auschwitz uh, in an episode of The Outer Limits, the 100th episode of The Outer Limits called Tribunal. And that was really tough because um, Sam Egan, who's a really good friend of mine, longtime friend and showrunner of the show, He's also like a writer, et cetera. And he's won like lots of awards for his writing. Um, he wrote this episode, Tribunal, as a tribute, tribute to his father, Leo, who survived Auschwitz. So here I am playing, you know, the commandant of Auschwitz. And the message behind it all is like, you know, never repeat this, right? We don't ever want to repeat this again. And meeting Leo, his dad, and hearing the real life stories of how Leo survived Auschwitz, but his first wife and child did not. Like, it was intense to say the least and uh i had some pretty interesting dreams during that period when we were filming let me tell you so yeah it was uh it, it was that was a, that was a tough one can't imagine like listening to to someone go through something that horrific like, <coughs> I, I, oh I yeah i mean honestly... you couldn't show i mean you could i guess but you wouldn't want to see the stuff that leo described to me like like i and i'm yeah uh you know, there was an officer that killed his first wife and child. And, you know, he, uh, the officer kicked the little girl like a soccer ball and killed her. I mean, that's how his daughter died. And so when I heard that, I just, I, I just broke down. I was like, I can't, like, no way. You know, and then you hear these people that, and that they overcame and they survived. And Leo went on to have a second family and raise Sam and siblings, I believe. And then, you know, I, 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 I met Leo when he was 84 and literally he wanted to be in the episode. So they had him dressed in, in prisoner outfits. And when I came out, some of the costuming I was wearing was actual Nazi regalia. It was actually Nazi clothing, um, you know, that was rented from a collector. And uh, I came out and he just gasped. I'll never forget. It. He just went, <gasps> and he, and he put his finger up, like, just like, give me a minute. And he turned around and I just about started to bawl. Like, I couldn't believe it. And he came out and said, Samuel, like, you know, and he said to me, like, you look just like him. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, great, thanks. You know, and, and, but just, just the stories you would tell, like that, 
that one about his wife and daughter was just the worst thing I've ever heard. And anyway, but the point is like just these emotional things that he had to relive and it was just too much for him. So he couldn't actually be in the episode, but we took a photograph together and he wanted, because he had survivor guilt. So many people did. And he wrote um, Holocaust survivor poetry his whole life. And I went to visit him at the Jewish home for the aged in Reseda, California, years after we did this episode and, you know, visit him and you know hang out. And he wasn't quite, you know, able to speak, you know, and really communicate. But, you know, I visited him for a couple of hours and we hung out and just, you know, when you're when you work as intensely with people like that, sharing things like so intense and an intense part of their life like that, you you form a bond with them that just doesn't disappear. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can imagine. And and you kind of want to be, you kind of want to be respectful and not, you know. Oh, totally. And not be like, okay, I, I'm I'm playing a character, but I don't want to like, you know, cross a line. Well, yeah, and, and that's the thing. It's like you know how how inhuman do you make these people, right? Or or and and the thing is, I saw this documentary um, talking about um, Auschwitz and other prisoner camps where they would have, um, you know, Jewish prisoners acting as the valets, uh, you know, assistants to these officers. And they said how it, the clothing made these monsters. It finished them off. Like outside of their clothing, they looked like weak, normal men. But when they put those Nazi outfits on and marched off, they they became just monstrous, right? And I have to say, as an actor, you know, it's one thing to do all the backstory work. I wrote this incredible backstory, long backstory for my character, et cetera. But it wasn't until I put on the outfit that it just, boom, like solidified who this guy was, right? And that's that's the thing for a lot of actors. Like I've done a lot of theater too, and, and, and that's the whole thing. You rehearse like crazy, rehearse like crazy. But then like during dress rehearsal, you put the costume on. And then boom, it just drops into place. Everything you've worked on drops into place because now the costume embodies the character. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite the process sometimes. And you know, all of a sudden my acting jumps up like you know fifty percent better because I've got the right costume on. And what was the best and worst advice you've ever gotten as an actor? <laughs> um, best advice. Well, we'll start with the worst. Worst advice where people were like, I don't know advice, but people always said, oh, you, when I went to theater school, I was like, I started going to theater school when I was like 24, 24, 25. And people were like, oh, you're too old to start theater school. You're too old. You're too old. I was like, oh yeah. Okay. Thanks. And then I got into theater school, did my, got in the program and like, you know, a thousand people applied, 300 auditioned, 14 got selected. And I was one of 14 and, and uh, out of the 14 of us, only about like four of us really did anything afterwards in our careers with it. But uh, I was told, oh, you're too old to start acting afterwards. Oh, you're too old. I was almost like 30 when I started acting professionally, right? I was in 1997. I was 30 years old. And people, oh, you're too old. You're too old. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, thanks. Well, uh, you know, I've made a living at it. And the people that have, have told me I was too old, I don't know where they are anymore. So that's the worst advice is to quit because I was too old. Um, I think best advice is just to be true to yourself and, you know, uh, be truthful to the self, to the character, you know, um, honor the work and, you know, just be a good human and, you know, move forward. I, my, my dad said this to me years ago and he said, listen, you can do and accomplish and be anything you want to be, but just remember this, 
it doesn't make you a better person than anybody else. And that stuck with me my whole life. And that's what I hopefully try to live by. I don't think I always, you know, live up to it, but I try. Right, honey? Yes. Yes. Even when I fail to clean up the house or, you know, <laughs> or, or clean up my mess after I'm doing renovations. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, that's, I think it's the best advice I ever got in my life was my, from my dad that, you know, you can, you can accomplish anything you want to set your mind to, but it doesn't make you a better person. Like, don't think you're a better person just because you accomplished your goals. You know, there's a lot, there's everybody out there. There's a new, my dad was a maintenance foreman for the majority of his working life at a college. You know, and I'll never forget, there was a story of a professor that came in from, um, a foreign professor came in and and, and he walked across the, the college was about to open and he walked across the college in these, in his mud and muddy boots because they, they hadn't laid the sod outside yet. And he walked across the grass instead of using the sidewalk and walked right into the, um, the college. And, the, and my dad walked up to him and said, Hey, what are you doing? Like, there's a mud room over there and the, in, in Alberta, we have these like a porch or a mud room where you take your muddy boots off and put other shoes on to walk into the building. All right. And, uh, and he said to my dad, get out of my, get out of my way, you peasant. And my dad, who's, a, you know, the nicest, sweetest guys you ever met in your life. He just leaned back, made a fist and was ready to like, just smoke this guy. And um, his, his boss, uh, John Webster grabbed him and said, Alex, don't do it. He's not worth it. And the the professor was just shocked that, you know, anyone would treat him like this or talk like this. So, but he turned around, went back, took his boots off, et cetera. They cleaned the floors and whatever. And then years later, this professor said to, you know, my dad, well, not years, he apologized after that. But years later, this professor, I ran into him after my dad had passed away. And he told me this story again and said, your dad taught me a very valuable lesson that day that, you know, I thought I was, I thought it was, I was better than him because I was a professor. And I valued my work more than I valued him. And I was wrong. And your dad taught me that. And I was like, wow, that was, that was incredible. That guy to say that. Peasant. That's, that's kind of a weird insult. <laughs> well, he was from, yeah, he was from, a, he was from another part of the world where, you know, I don't want to say necessarily, but they have a different levels of social, you know, strata. And I think he just translated it to peasant. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. so. No, but, yeah. but still, I mean, that's that's a that's an important lesson where it's like there's there are times where you're going to run into people who who belittle you, but honestly, like it's not worth it. It's not, you know, it's it's much better to oh. take, you know, to take the high ground and not stoop to that le- stoop to that level. Oh yeah, totally. If, if I may, real quickly, when I met, uh, I did my first movie, 1997. I did the Thirteenth Warrior, and um, uh, I worked with Omar Sharif, and that blew my mind. Like we'd been waiting around, uh, like there was about six of us Vancouver actors were chosen to be like, um, you know, six sort of more prominent um, Vikings that don't go on the adventure, but still were there, right? And I'm waiting around all day for, you know, all day, but waiting around for Omar and Antonio Banderas to show up. But Omar's my, like one of my heroes. And um, I see him walk in the, in the, in the, in the tent comes in and my heart just starts going like, ba-boom, 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 ba-boom. And they say you don't want to meet your heroes, but that's not true in his case. Omar Sharif was a complete gentleman. He wouldn't like drone on and talk about himself. And like, you know, there's some actors I know they go, Oh, well, when I was here, I did this. When I was here, I did that. He's not like that at all or wasn't God bless me. He's passed away, but he would only really talk about stuff. If you asked him questions, I said, Omar, like, you know, I ended up sitting across from him. It was just a happy accident. I ended up sitting across from him and Antonio for the week that I was shooting in this big, like, you know, dining, the big 
the banquet scene or whatever. And I just said, you know, tell me about what was it like shooting like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and, and, and Dr. Zhivago, you know, like I, I'm a huge David Lean fan. And, and so he would tell stories, but, you know, at one point too, there was a, a miscommunication and um, he invited us all out for dinner, all the principal actors. And, you know, the six of us didn't get the invitation and we walked into this restaurant and they'd all been eating, <laughs> excuse me. And he says, Alex, what happened? Where, where, where were you? I, I invited you. What happened? And I just looked at him and we knew why there was a couple people that, you know, wanted to monopolize him and his time. And so they didn't, they just purposely didn't tell us. And I, and I said, I'm sorry, Omar, we didn't get the invitation. So he looked right down at the two people that he had told to invite us and they were very sheepish and whatever. And he goes, well, you know, well, come, you know, come down and join us. And he just like he bought this beautiful meal for us. And we were talking about whiskey during the week at times during the break. And he says, Alex, do you want the whiskey? And I said, sure. Yeah. You know, and he told stories of, um, you know, working on, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, Lawrence of Arabia and, but just a super genuine, nice guy and not full of himself. Do you know what I mean? That's so rare. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give you a little quick story. I think you'll love it. And, you know, and he, so I said to him, hey, what was it like doing Lawrence of Arabia? He said, I'll tell you a story. I'm like, of course, great. And it's just, I'm, I'm enraptured. I'm like, you know, and uh, he says, well, I, I went to David one day and, and sorry, I'm, I'm doing an impression of Omar, so I shouldn't do that. But he, he had such a beautiful way of speaking. And he was just like, I went to, I went to, um, to David, I said, David, I think I should be tied to the camel. And he and he's like, oh, my dear boy, no, no, you mustn't be tied. What if the camel falls? You'll be killed. David, the possibility of the camel falling is very small. The possibility of me falling from the camel is very great. You know, and because he said, I never, I grew up in, he said, I think he was, um, he, he was uh, Egyptian and Lebanese, I believe. And uh, but he grew up and never having ridden a camel. His family was fairly wealthy, and his dad was a lumber merchant, and so he'd never ridden a camel. And so they, if you look at the movie, uh, I think it's in the charge of uh, Akbar. Uh, Akbar. They they have strategically pinned uh, his robe to himself because he has been tied to the saddle with the same material they made his robes out of. And so when he rides away, you hear him say, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Well, that's not scripted. That's him freaking out riding the camel. <laughs> I did not know that. Now I got to watch that again. To yeah, see that. watch that. <laughs> but he tells stories like that. He, 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 he was not full of himself. You know what I mean? He would, he would tell stories that might, some people might consider embarrassing or silly or whatever, right? But again, he wouldn't drone on like he wouldn't just talk about himself. You had to force him to tell you stuff because, you know, he wasn't that guy. He was just like, you know, like, where are you from, Alex? What, what are your, who's your family? Who's your dad? You know, who's your mother? What do they do? Like, he, I'm getting I'm getting goosebumps and Shannon will attest to it. Oh, yes. You know, I get goosebumps when I get excited and, and, you know, have fond memories like that. And he was just one of the most genuine, nice people you've ever met. And Antonio Banderas as well. Um I left a production of Julius Caesar. I was doing a play, Julius Caesar, with all this burgeoning young actors that, you know, trying to get make a life in the business. And I had to come to the director and producer and say, listen, I've got this movie and I, I, t technically speaking, I should quit. But I'm committed to you guys and I don't want to quit. But I have this film, so I'm going to try to see if we can work something out. And I was in tears. Like I was in tears saying I had to quit this this play. And they all said, no, just go, go. Don't worry about it. And the director said, I'll, I'll do your part. I'll even have to have a book in hand for a while, like with a script in hand. 
And everybody was so encouraging. And I told Antonio this, right? We were on a break one time talking and he goes, oh, I played Marcus Antonio in school. And so we started talking about Julius Caesar and acting on this break. And, you know, super genuine, nice guy as well. Like, I'm really been fortunate. A lot of the major A-list stars I've worked with and just no egos, super nice people. Like, you know, Robert Duvall, Kevin Costner, Annette Benning, Sir Michael Gambon, like people like that, they just... They get to where they're at for a reason, you know, and I think part of it is the beautiful, they have a good soul inside. No, that, that's great to hear because like you hear a lot of stories about actors being like really, really terrible on set, but like no one talks Come about on. the people who, you know, take the time yeah. off their day to talk to, to people, to the extras or the people who or like just like sure. the supporting cast, you know? Yeah. Well, like Henry Winkler, Henry Winkler, the who played the Fonz, you know, for all his years. And I just worked with his son and they talk about coming full circle and like, you know, 2000 or so around there early in my career, I did an episode of the dead man's gun, this Western that Henry executive produced, but he would act in one episode a season, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> he would act in one episode a season. And he was so nice, so kind. And like, you know, talk to the little kids on set and talk to the background performers and, you know, just super nice man. And then here, like 20 years later, and I think his son, Max was, probably like 10 or 15 at the time. Now Max is directing me in school of spirits. And I told that to Max and he goes, yeah, my dad literally is one of the nicest people I know. And I'm like, well, there you go. You know? And just, I think there's a lot of people that they struggle with them. Um, they become famous and then the fame drops and then they, they freak out after that and they start trying to claw onto the fame and keep the fame. And so they act terribly when they don't get treated like royalty or something. But for the most part, the people who, you know, have worked hard and respect the work that it takes to get to that level, you know, they're not egotists. They're just really hardworking, good people. And it's it's been borne out for me in my uh, in my encounters, not just the actors, but, you know, directors. I worked with John Landis and uh, he was amazing. Like just he would just tell stories for days about working on the Blues Brothers and all the stuff and Animal House and. You know, we'd be we'd be just all enraptured listening to him, and then the AD finding out, Mr. Landis, we we have to start filming. We've been talking for like an hour, and well, why didn't someone tell me? Like, <laughs> you know, we just yeah, very genuine, nice people for the most part. And yeah, you you do get to work with those other people, and I try to, I'm try, I, I forget those other people because there's no point. Why well, remember negative, jerky people? Can't say that for my uh, personal life, maybe you know, but <laughs> professionally, I try to forget that. So yeah. I mean, it's, it is what it is. Like you're, you're going to run to, you're going to run into people who you, you know, you love being around and you're going to run into people you don't like being around. And it's, it, and I feel like nowadays people focus more on the negative instead of the positive. And, and I just don't like that. I'm like, you know, I'm tired of seeing people constantly put others down. It's like, why can't we build each other up again? I miss that. Absolutely. You know, and that's the thing about it's so easy to do that. Um, my, my, I'll never forget this. And maybe if she's still alive out there, I don't know. But Mrs. Anderson, my grade seven teacher, health class, she told us when we were kids, there's a thing called the pull down theory, where if you're succeeding, you're doing well in your classes or in you know your sporting life and your teams or whatever, there's always people that are going to be a little jealous or envious. And instead of saying great work and you know using you as an example and try to strive to what you've done, they try to pull you down and 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 negativize everything. And I thought, you know what? I and and I was a victim of that because I was a bit of a overachiever and you know academically and in sports and drama and stuff. I you know 
did just did I did a lot of stuff. I won the participation award for our high school. I was in like 12 different groups, like intramural council, uh, wrestling club, uh, drama club, you know, radio club, you know, whatever. Anyway, but the point was, you know, these people try to pull you down because they're jealous. And I thought, well, why don't we try to build each other up? But it's 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 actually easier to be positive than it is to be negative. And that's a lesson I still struggle with sometimes. But, you know, to 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 pull people down, what's your, what's your, what's your end game is what I get at. What's the end game of that? So that you can do less with your life, so you can be less, so you can be miserable, so you can be mean, so you can be what? Why would you want that? You know, I've had people in my lifetime say, "How can you be so happy all the time?" or whatever. Well, it takes it takes it takes its toll on you when everybody else around you is is you know, or not maybe not everybody, but a lot of people around you. Their first thing is to go negative. So I think you have to learn to unlearn, unlearn what you've been taught or what you've conditioned yourself to do, so that you can look at life in a new way. And, you know, I, I struggle with that, you know, with, uh, especially with the politics and the COVID situation and whatever else it's been, you know, difficult, but I think I'm going to, I resolved a while ago to, to be better on it and to, um, with my wife and I to organize our lives and declutter our souls. Right, honey. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we've been decluttering our house and it does, it declutters the soul. And, you know, you don't need all these things around you and people have things and they, 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 they look at things that are going to make their lives better. People, it's not things that make your life better. It's people. So I choose people over things. Yeah. I, I, re I was recently thinking about this. Uh, I, I think I said this to someone recently, uh, you know, the people who enjoy the people who enjoy your company, you know, keep the, keep them around and just forget about the people who just tolerate you. The people who yeah. tolerate you are, are whatever, but the people who just genuinely enjoy your presence and will go out of their way to, to want to spend time with you, you know, you don't let them, you don't let them go. You do not no. let them walk away. You, you let them be, be a part of your life till the very end. Absolutely. I, I, I literally have my, my best friend in the world is Dennis Mark. Dennis and I met the summer before grade one. So we're literally onto 50 years of friendship. And we can pick up the phone after not having talked for months and just, hey, buddy, what's going on? Oh, you know, hanging out with the kids. You know, he's got two little boys and, uh, you know, and, and I'm like, oh, you know, Shannon and I are going like, you know, snowboarding today or whatever. Just, you know, we pick up like nothing's nothing's changed. And, and I'm really fortunate. Um, I've got a we've got a really good group of friends here in Vancouver area. And <laughs> we call ourselves the urban tribe. And we totally, you know, support each other, help each other out all the time. You know, we go on vacations together sometimes. And, you know, we rented a houseboat, uh, you know, uh, twice. And we went into these, in the interior of British Columbia. And uh, in, what's, that, what's that Lake District called again? Um, uh, the Shushwap. Went in the Shushwap. And, you know, there was one year there was 17 or 18 of us. And the other year there was 21 of us on this houseboat. And like, you know, for a week. And, you know, you, it's a real testament. If you can spend a week with your, uh, you know, friends and nobody all fights, you know, or gets into arguments or whatever, and we all just have a good time. But, you know, we support each other through like babies being born, operations, like, you know, careers, ups and downs, like, you know, family deaths. It's a, it takes a it takes a tribe, you know what I mean? Or a village. And we are we are our own village. So I've been really fortunate to be friends with these guys for the last like 20, 25 years and yeah. And and when we finish this interview today, we got to go call our uh, our um, niece and, and sing her happy birthday. So there you go. 
nice to know that the sense of community is still alive somewhere because oh totally yeah lord knows we need that more than ever nowadays after the past two years of of covid yeah yeah it's it's been tough let me tell you the last two years have been you know pretty challenging um you know for for me professionally um it's been really good personally because my wife and i living together we lived through covid together and you know, we said we, we, we kind of had sort of just moved in together. No, no, we were in the first year. Yeah, it was a, we'd had a, we were in a year and a half. A year and a half in when COVID hit. And then we got isolated in here and we survived. We didn't kill each other, you know, and uh, we didn't really fight, you know, uh, or have arguments per se. And we ended up deciding to get married uh, a year after COVID hit. So there you go. And then it worked out well. Worked out well. We got <laughs> we got married. And that was another thing. Like you talk about the urban tribe helping out. We uh, were planning on getting married at our house, but it, uh, the weather was bad. It was an outdoor, indoor event. and um, But the weather, you know, started raining. Usually it rains like crazy here in, in Vancouver. And last uh, two, two Septembers ago, it sure did. And instead, we our friends rallied behind us. And, um, you know, we had it at our friend's uh, shop. And he has, they, sorry, him and his wife have this like, you know, large shop and they but it's not like a you know like a garage sort of thing it's a more of a you know just a personal uh, uh, space or whatever anyway but he um uh they they strung up these beautiful white tarps all around the exterior they hung the you know these old edison lights across the space to light it up and you know they hosted our wedding for us we didn't do anything no, no, I'm very lucky. We are very lucky. We have well, a great. It's also, the cheap people we choose to serve yeah. ourselves with. Yeah, yeah, but that was the thing. Like you know, they came together, rallied together during this like rainstorm, and um, and uh, you know, and our friend uh, Roseanne, she um, you know, catered our our the, well, not amazing cook, not just her, but she's an amazing cook. You could call her a chef, actually. And they catered our wedding for us. We had a small wedding, forty-eight people, because we're trying to stay within COVID guidelines. And, you know, if I had my way, there'd be 300, 400 people there. But, you know, old Ukrainian wedding, as I used to go when I was a kid. But it was just an amazing event. And it was so personal and so meaningful. And that's the thing. It's like, even even during the, <laughs> even during the tough times of COVID like that, we found a time to come together as, as this, our urban tribe. And it was just so special and so beautiful. And all these little happy accidents that happened throughout the day and things just worked out and... At one point, they had to hold the tables and chairs and all the the placing place settings out, and we were going to try to do <coughs> excuse me the ceremony outside, but it rain was just raining way too hard. So um, they quickly just rallied the guests and everybody's like they moved all the tables and chairs and made pews and brought the bridal arch that we had inside, and we got married inside the space. Uh, and then George, our friend, stood up and said, okay, well, we have to reset the tables and the bar doesn't open until we do that. So let's get going. And so everybody rallied and we reset the tables in minutes and they would usher Shannon and I away and we didn't have to do anything. We didn't do anything. Yeah. But that's the thing. That's the, that's the, the beauty of a, of a strong friendship and community like that, that, you know, it just, it it was a seamless, it was probably one of the best seamless, most stress-free days of my life. And how have you found like working from home? Like, was that easy to get into or was it <coughs> hard? Um, it's been difficult, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like uh, Shannon will join in here. Shannon, how hard has it been? <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Very difficult. Because, you know, we're really used to, as actors, you know, we're used to working with people and, and directors and writers, producers. So when you go into a traditional, go into an audition room, 
everybody's sitting in there like well not everybody but there'll be a casting director minimally and they'll she or he'll give you feedback and you'll go again and do it a couple two three times and then yeah okay off we go great thanks very much or if you're in a callback situation or whatever with the producer director writer whatever they're right there to give you immediate feedback and and you can adjust and 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 work with them and it shows you how they and they get a feeling of what it's like to work with you uh, on set like what, what it might be like to work with you on set so when you're at home doing your self-tape yeah okay you take your best go at it but there's no one to give you a redirect to say hey try this instead whatever okay great you know or that was great do this so i i I really miss that and for a person like myself who's very i like people and i like being working with people it's it's been very difficult and not being in the room and i just recently had a call back for a series which i didn't get but got very close on and they offered me another role because of it um but i went for the call back in person and it was wonderful because the guy said you know the guy the gentleman was there producer said oh that was really great try this and so i did it and he goes oh that was hilarious and again like he was literally laughing out loud it was a comedy and he was laughing out loud behind the 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 scenes here when i was doing it so getting that that feedback that immediate feedback and and getting a feel for the people getting a feel for you know who you are because let me tell you it goes a long way like I'd rather work with people on set that maybe I'd rather work with the second best actor who was a really good person than work with the best actor who was not a nice person. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's, how do I put this? Cause it's, it's difficult. Cause um, like everyone wants to work with like big name actors, but sometimes I'm like, you know, big name actors, like it's, it's kind of like a crapshoot sometimes because you never know if that person's going to be nice or is going to be like, it's not going to give you the time of day. But if you're right. working with someone who isn't on, let's just say, like a main event level, like a, more of a mid card, then you, yeah. you know you're gonna get more. I don't want to say down to earth, but like more of a human experience. I, I should say. Sure. Yeah, it, it's quite possible. Yeah, and but I think that also reflects of where they are personally. Like a, a lot of people, again, I think it's what's happened to them in their career, and if they're, you know, dealing with the here and the now, where they're at. Or are they living in the past, wishing they still had past fame and glory? You know what? You got to accept where you are and what's going on. And it, yeah, it can be difficult, and especially in the last couple of years of COVID. And it's been very difficult, like career-wise for me. And it's been a real challenge. And I've had to learn that a lot. Okay, accept the given circumstances and move on. But, you know, part of this guy here, like, I, I don't want to do that. I've I've been very used to working a lot and relatively speaking and making a living at it well it's been very difficult to make a living at acting the last couple of years so you know and, and i've just really got back into it this, uh, making a solid living the last year or so and yeah it's uh it can be tough so but you know after a while like you've got to decide do you want to be content do you want to be happy or do you want to be miserable and i'll be quite frank i'm tired of being miserable you know, and not like I was miserable all the time, but I certainly wasn't as happy the last couple of years. I don't think anybody's been as happy as they have been the last few years here. So I really uh, made the choice to uh, to try to look the other way and ig- not ignore, but work on work on happy and leave sad to itself. Yeah, I wish more people did that, honestly. Just just focus on the good and just, you know, leave the negative behind. Yeah, exactly. A negative's going to be there. And if you choose to wallow in it, you know, it, 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 it will consume you. Whereas if you coat yourself with good, funny enough, guess what? Good, good will surround you. Hmm. Who, who knew, you know? 
So um, how did the voiceover thing start? You know, a real quick, uh, was it, um, I, 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 I got acting and I did, uh, I didn't really have a demo reel, et cetera. So I had one made up real quick and um, I got a voice agent at uh, the character's talent agency, which I've been with for like, like 23 years or so. And um, uh, I, I went out on this, one of my first auditions, I went out for the Roswell conspiracies and uh, it was a, like a men in black sort of meets, um, uh, oh gosh, what's a, what's a good one? It was like a men in black sort of thing where the, but monsters of legend were actually aliens. So in the Roswell crash, there was actually werewolves on board. <gasps> dun, 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 you know? And, uh, and so vampires, banshees, you know, mummies, they were actually, they're actually aliens. And um, my character was like, um, looked a little like uh, uh, Harrison Ford's character from uh, uh, Blade Runner. I was Nick Logan, bounty hunter. And I remember still, yeah, cracker, I'm on it. You know, looks like Throp hasn't lost his taste for steak tartare. And I saw this image of this picture of this guy. And I thought, I just a young John Wayne sort of came to mind. And, and I did this audition and I booked the lead of the series. My first job ever, like my first, almost one of my first auditions. And I knew nothing about the voiceover world. And I went in and, and it was so different back then too, because he used to do a thing called Viper Pit Casting, where they wouldn't pre-assign the smaller roles. You have your major roles would be assigned. And then there'd be all this, you know, the guest star role maybe, or all these other smaller roles. And they would literally have people, okay, who wants to do this role? And like everybody, I, I, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. So they would start letting a guy audition. And oh yeah, that's a good voice. That's fine, we'll keep him. So if you yelled long, hot, like loud enough, you would get an audition or it was just ridiculous. Or you know, just, you'd, get, you'd get the role because you read first. And anyway, that was a bit crazy. But again, I just did my first audition and got this role and I was the lead. And I was like, wow, like, yeah, I remember like night, the nights before I'm up studying all the scripts, going through everything and, making sure I'm going to do a really good job with this. And um, it, yeah, it was kind of crazy. It was my first gig and I got a lead of a series. We did 40 episodes. So, but the problem was the new, the new star Wars movies were coming out like the, it was 97. So the, I can't remember what the name of it is, but, but the new, the ones that George Lucas started doing again and in the nineties and uh, we couldn't get a toy deal. There was no toy deal. And they had, we had all these great toys that would like, you know, you know the, the, we drive cars and they would like, you know, suddenly expand and become almost like walkers from Star Wars, et cetera. But I shouldn't say that because they weren't. But anyway, but we couldn't get a toy deal. So because they couldn't get a toy deal, they didn't renew the series. But it's uh, some people consider it just an amazing series. And I thought it was great, you know. So, yeah, that was my first audition. And then I just kind of kept going from there. And uh, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I've done a lot of commercials a uh, fair bit of you know animation. Uh, recently, more recently, I played um, Red Skull in uh, Lego Marvel Adventures. I play you know, Red Skull, ah, Captain America. Very good to see you again. You know, so that's his voice. And then I play uh, Vic Hoskins on the head of security for Jurassic uh, World Park here. Yeah, and you know it's Lego as well. And and he's a bit of a goof. And you know he you know he's always running around with his uh, you know his little uh, electric taser gun, and he gets zats and tases himself all the time you know it's funny funny good stuff and how was the dubbing process for you because i know you've done anime as well but how, and how how yeah. did you take to that was that easier you no know, i i, I it, it's good i find it fun and e- not easy per se but i find it there's an ease to it you have to ease into it right you can't force it um i do I, i've done a lot of adr in the past like you know when the dialogue happens and you're filming outdoors and a plane goes overhead and you have to you know re- redo your dialogue and 
I'm I'm quite good at that because I remember the rhythms. It's all about rhythm. It's almost like being a musician, you get into the rhythms of it. And same with the anime. <coughs> Excuse me. Same with the anime. Like you listen to the original Japanese, get a feel for what they're saying, you know, and you hope to to goodness that the writer has, you know, a good translator who's who's translated the script for you. And um, you work with the, the director and engineer there, and you really just go with this flow of the script and 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 try to match the flaps, as they say, and and because uh, you know match the lips of the character. Uh, so there's an I think there's an ease to it. You can't force it. You have to you have to work your way into it. You know what I mean? And I I I find it I find it satisfying work. I do fair a fair bit of it. So uh, I mean Conan, uh, you know, um, oh gosh, what's the name of it? Uh, um, I just posted, uh, reposted something today. Uh, I'm in a series called Conan. I play Lepka in it and play the bad guy. I, invariably, I say I play a lot of bad guys. I, I mean, because I can, I can act well or whatever. But <laughs> you know, but in this new series, I'm playing Mistvern in the the Adventures of Die, and and uh, he's like, you know, the sort of like the Darth Vader of the show, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's it's. I find it really fun and satisfying. And like the directors you work with are really good, and they've got great suggestions. Like Jack, this director I work with, he's amazing. You know, Carl at um, uh, Ocean Sound. These guys are, they're just amazing. They do their job so well. And uh, speaking of speaking of Mist Vern, did you audition for any other characters or was that the only character you auditioned for? No, I think I auditioned for quite a few. Um, I don't really remember 100% because it's been a while now. Um, if I went through my phone and I could look at the log I did. Uh, but, um, I, you know, I... I, I can't really remember, but I know Miss Vern was my favorite. So funny enough, I booked my favorite, the one I enjoyed doing the most. Um, and then, uh, but I do remember early on, I auditioned um, when I first got an iPhone, like this is like iPhone five or six or whatever it was. I auditioned for this uh, video game um, and I did like 14 characters. I auditioned for four and I got six of them. And I was like, whoa. So I played six different characters in this, like a, it was like a, a video game on your phone or whatever. And it was, um, uh, I played, uh, you know, some of the other Cordobas, and I had this uh, for an interesting sort of Spanish accent. You see, it's all about the the, the conquistadors coming to uh, South America. So yeah, that was fun. I mean, when you audition for multiple characters in the show and you get like half a dozen characters, that was pretty cool. And what was it like working on Gundam? Because I I really oh. love I love your character on Gundam. <laughs> that, was, that was a yeah. great character. Gundam was fun. Um. And then playing my own twin. That's not the only time I've played my own twin, which is funny enough. Um, I played uh, in Gundam Double O. I played, uh, you know, Lock on Stratos. And I played Lyle DeLandy, uh, you know. And it's funny because it's on, on my demo reel. And it's on my phone. Every once in a while, I plug into the car and my demo reel comes on. And those scenes come on immediately. And I'm like, oh, stop that, you know. But uh, that was a lot of fun. I have to admit, Gundam Double O was, like, super fun. I know it's got a huge history to it. And... I, I did some background voices for little characters on one of the other previous Gundam iterations years and years ago, but um, that was a lot of fun. And then, oh gosh, what was the other one? Um, I just, oh yeah. And then I played, uh, funny enough, in a live action thing, uh, Secret Agent Man. I played my own Austrian terrorist twin, Arno and Oslo. These two, you know, goofy Austrian terrorists. It sounds terrible to say that. it was a bit of a comedy weirdness and. But uh, that was a lot of fun, and that was another good death. One of my characters died of of, of uh, like smallpox or something in there. Like, just they just I, I had a, a conversation a while ago with Sean Bean. You know how he's died so many times in in TV and film, and uh, I laughed because I said, "Sean, I got to admit, you did good, but I got you beat hands down." He goes, "What do you mean?" He goes, I, "I think I've died like forty two times on TV and film." He's like, "No way!" And so we started logging them off, and we just had a good laugh about it. It was pretty funny. <laughs> Someone made a death cut yet? <laughs> you have all this stuff. Oh yeah, 
a, a, a Stargate fan, when I was at like 30 something on screen deaths, a Stargate fan made a death cut for me. And oh my God, it was so funny to watch, you know. But I'll tell you, it's not funny. It's my mom, like one of the first guest stars I did was uh, on The Sentinel. Yeah, the first guest star I did was The Sentinel. And I played this guy, uh, this homeless man, but uh, Gabriel the Angel had come down and taken over his body to help save a young boy. And uh, <clears throat> the actor that, I have to look it up, but that actor who played the young boy has gone on to become quite well-known um, uh, uh, Latino uh, actor. I'll look it up here. But um, when my mother um, saw that show, I uh, I didn't warn her that I, you know, get killed in the show. So when she saw, saw me getting shot, like all she saw was her little boy dying on, like dying, right? And it just, she was crying or whatever. I said, oh, mom, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And, you know, like, because you don't think about that, like really, because you know, it's just, it's a it's a character, right? And then real quick here, um, our friends, uh, my, my buddies, uh, our buddy, our friends, uh, Devin and Leslie Whipple, their daughter, Hannah Whipple, was just here the other day with her friend visiting from out of town. We went for dinner with them and little Hannah, when little Hannah was three years old, I sent a, uh, like a videotape back home saying the Alex Sahara film fest. And I put a bunch of episodes on for them. Well, one of them was, uh, the dead man's gun where I get hung by Henry Winkler. Well, I never thought about saying a warning like, Oh yeah, I get hung in this or killed. Well, they're sitting around watching the show. And of course, uncle, like my nickname is Sandy to them. My uncle Sandy, uncle Sandy got hung. Uncle Sandy's dead. So, I don't know what time of day it was, but I get a panicked phone call from Devin saying, uh, buddy, listen, we just watched your thing. And, um, you know, you got hung there. Uh, well, Hannah thinks you're dead. I'm like, oh, no. So I get on the phone with this little three-year-old and I'm talking to her. No, it's just like Halloween, uh, sweetie. It's like, you know, it's just like make believe and pretend we get dressed in costume and this is all pretend and whatever. And so she was talking to me and finally she says, don't ever do that again. Oh my God. I just burst into tears. I, I, I was just bawling on the phone. Right. So yeah, you have to remember that even though it's entertainment, it's film, you know, don't let little kids watch it because they think it's real. <laughs> That's why we have TV ratings. <laughs> That's right. So yeah. And um, I'm, I'm just going to look up that character, the, the gentleman who played that uh, character. He was such a sweet young guy. And then he's gone on to do lots of good stuff. I, it's Pena, Michael Pena, Michael Pena. Oh, Michael Pena. Holy crap. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I worked, I worked with The Rock, too, by the way. Which movie? Dwayne The Rock. It was a TV series called The Net. Yeah, here it is. Michael Pena played Johnny in that episode of uh, The Sentinel. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, I did a, a series called The the net and I had a new recurring character on it. And uh, in this episode, there was an illegal online um, like death matches going on and we were trying to break it up. And I was, I was a U.S. Marshal and, and, and Dwayne, the rock Johnson was there and super nice guy. Like even back then, not no ego, no nothing. He was just like very, Hey, how's it going? Yeah. Yeah. It's good to be here. You know, and we just chatted and we didn't have any scenes together, but we just on set chatting, you know what I mean? (laughs) But yeah, back early, Early days, you work with people that go on to become, you know, huge, one of the biggest stars in the world. And like, who knew that was going to happen back then, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's like, because back then he was just a wrestler. And so probably your first question is like, you know, does that stuff hurt? You know, when when they hit you in the head with a chair, does that hurt? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
Well, I, I, you know, I never really watched, I'm, I'm listening to the wrestling thing. It's all kind of like, it's another world to me, but like, you know, I just, I think we just talk more like, you know, like, Hey, how's, how, where are you from? You know, what you know, what's your family like, whatever, you know, you know, that sort of thing. But um, yeah, I know that uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, the rock, not rock, but a lot of, there's a lot of injuries and stuff like that. But he, uh, he got into wrestling because I guess he said he played in the CFL, but he wasn't had, had an injury or something or wasn't good enough, got cut or whatever. And he says, well, thank God I got cut, you know? It's just it led to where he is today. Yeah, that story always stuck with me because it's like, man, you know, sometimes our biggest failures are our our greatest successes. Absolutely, and someone was just talking about this the other day. Uh, we were talking about this. You, you, you can learn more through your failures than your successes because you learn how to overcome and how to change and improve. You know, whereas if you just you're constantly getting success and it's, it's coming at you so easy, um, you you kind of stay within that. Time, that framework of what you're doing and and that's when i think sometimes people get pigeonholed as they do the same thing over and over and over again whereas if you if you really try to do different things and and stretch like like you look at daniel radcliffe like you know he he didn't stick to one thing after um you know a harry potter series was over he went on to do like tons of crazy stuff like you know playing a corpse in a film like the entire film like you know i can't remember the name of it right now but uh, he played a corpse in it. and then he did horns and i was his doctor in horns and you know, and there's another guy, no ego, super nice guy. And, and just like, you know, because you think he's one of the biggest, his movies he's done have made more money than gosh knows. Super cool, super nice, no ego, just like, hey, how's it going, blah, blah, blah. And so the first thing he said was, you remind me of Kenneth Branagh. Has anyone told you how much you look like Kenneth Branagh? And I said, you're the first one today. Because I used to get that a lot. So uh, when Kenneth was on screen more, well, now he's directing more. You don't see him on camera as much. But uh, uh, yeah, uh, it's super nice, you know, like just... Genuine, good, nice people, no egos, which which I love. It's funny you mentioned Daniel Radcliffe because I, I love that after the Harry Potter series was done, he just went on to do like every indie every indie script that that came his way. Yeah, <laughs> it was great. Apparently, his dad his dad got on him a bit because he wasn't paying the bills. Like he said, like listen, son, you got expenses here, and I, I read that somewhere in an article, and he was like, okay, now you gotta you gotta start getting paid here, you know. <laughs> But it's great because I love the fact that, you know, he could have been just like another big Hollywood star, but he's like, no, I want to make all these interesting scripts that wouldn't have gotten made if he hadn't agreed to do them. Like all those movies Absolutely. wouldn't have gotten made if they, if, if they, if they, if he had not agreed to do Swiss Army Man, that movie wouldn't have never gotten made. No, probably not. No, no, no. And even Horns, like, you know, Horns, like, like it was amazing. Work with, with the director Alexander Aja is incredible. And, but the whole cast in that was just amazing. And, uh, uh max mingala i worked with him and and just uh just the 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 people that were attracted to that like you know what i mean like just yeah crazy you know you forget sometimes like oh yeah no these these are you know genuine people sometimes because you you only you only see the star power but then you're like oh man no these guys are actually really really cool (laughs) yeah yeah well and even daniel said he said you look so much like him i'm I'm gonna i said if you don't mind I'll, i'll pass your stuff on to kenneth's people and i said Oh, really? Sure. So I gave him my stuff and they passed it on to Kenneth Branagh's people. He said, if Kenneth ever needs a, a brother in a movie, you should play him. And I'm like, wow, okay, sure. I, I never heard back from that, but you know, hey, he did offer to send it on. And as far as I know, he did, he sent it on. So I'm like, that was super cool. <laughs> if Kenneth ever needs like a stand in for something, he doesn't there you want go. To do. I will do it. I will be there. <laughs> yeah. The next Thor movie he's directing, I'll be your, I'll be your assistant. Uh, there you go. Or, the next, uh, you know, um, uh, 
uh, Agatha Christie, he does. Um, yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll, okay. I'll, I'll grow the mustache out and, you know, I'll, I'll, don't worry. I just had a mustache for the series I did, the School Spirits I just did. I had this large, like, Ned Flanders-like mustache since, what, August? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just shaved it off, like, what, last the night? night the last. night before last. So I've had that for months. It's funny because I have a big mustache and I shave it off in November when we're supposed to be growing our mustaches for, you know, support cancer. I'm like, I got to get that off. I got to get it off my face. So <laughs> not a mustache guy, I take it. Well, I, I've worn a beard pretty much my whole life, but no, not a mustache. It just looks, I don't know, for me, it looks a little too cheesy. <laughs> Yeah, well, my brother has a mustache, and I and I always joke like, you know, you you look you look so much like Flanders. It's 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 insane. See? <laughs> like, you thank well, you. I, I was, that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was playing a principal, right? So what did I? Whatever he started comparing me to was uh, the principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You know, you kind of look Oof. like him. Yeah. <laughs> that is yeah. not a compliment. I know. That's what I said. Well, as a as a, as a character, funny, you know, good a good character, but as a human being, maybe not so much. Anyways, I hate to say, but we've got to kind of get it going here, so I got to let you go. Uh, Before we get going, can you give us an update on what you're currently working on? Where can people find you online? Well, like I just just finished a series called School Spirits, which I think is going to start in January, February with Paramount Plus. Um, And it's uh, about a young woman who's, um, you know, who dies or killed in her high school, murdered potentially. and And her ghost comes back and she starts investigating her own murder. Uh, uh, which is kind of quite fascinating. And then I'm doing that. And then um, there's a film out right now called Drinkwater. Uh, you can check that out. It's a comedy feature film. And I play this coach in it. It's very funny. It's with Eric McCormick from Will and Grace. And uh, But it centers on this young man who wants to go to college, but his dad hasn't really saved any money and he's graduating from high school. So as his coach, I, I encourage him to get into this um, cross-country race, which has a $10,000 scholarship attached to it. Uh, and just all the chaos and mayhem that ensue. And then um, a couple films that I've uh, done and produced are on, uh, is it, is it, what's that service? Uh, Hubie? No. Yeah. H-U-B-I. H-U-B-I, Hubie. Um, Patterson's Wager, feature film that I produced uh, and acted in, is in there, along with Gary Chalk from Stargate. Uh, he plays my father. Uh, and, um, and uh, yeah, uh, you can check that out. And, what else is going on? Oh, um, yeah, The Adventures of Die uh, uh, is out right now, and I play you know Mist Vern in that. And um, there's you know little things coming out, and little things, like other things coming out here and there that I'm I'm not sure if I'm allowed to talk about yet. So I'll, I'll leave the rest. But that's a fair bit to look at there. And online, you can check. Excuse me, check. Me out, <laughs> sorry, check me out on Facebook or um, and go to my website alexsahara.com and a list of stuff that I'm doing currently and a bunch of photos and videos and my demo reels and stuff you can check out from the past. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time off to do this. This has been great. And, you know, once that other stuff clears, we got to get you back and to get to talk about it. <laughs> Cheers, man. And thanks for, for sticking with me. I know, uh, Abdul is, uh, he's, he's been, he's been hanging in there for me because I've been, uh, one of our, one of our dogs is having a little nightmare right now. She's, she's huffing and puffing and crying out. Sorry. <laughs> Anyway, but you've been you've been really good, and I really want to thank you for uh, you know being patient with me and all the uh, the delays we've had. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much. All right, take care. Bye bye. Bet. Take care, man. And yeah, give me a shout anytime. All right, take care. Bye bye. Bet. Bye bye.